Join us for the ETF.com Awards on May 2nd in New York City to honor and celebrate innovation, excellence, and growth in the ETF industry. With an impressive panel of expert judges, a record number of nominees, and more than 200 of the most influential players in the ETF space, this is one event you won't want to miss. Reserve your seat today at awards.etf.com. Hello, and welcome to Exchange Traded Fridays, our weekly news roundup from ETF.com. I'm Daria Solovieva, the managing editor of ETF.com, and with me is my colleague and senior analyst, Semi Troy. Hi, Samit. Hey, Daria. How's it going? Good, good. Uh, lots of interesting stories out today at ETF.com, and we wanted to kick things off with just kind of asking about the significance of the jobs report this week uh, for ETF investors and what everyone should look out for. It's significant because, right, we just got the banking turmoil in regional banks in March, right? So the jobs data that we got on Friday is telling us, you know, did that banking turmoil affect the economy in a significant way? And in particular, the, the Fed is interested to know whether wage growth is also slowing down, right? This is a big part of inflation. Wage growth in the service sector has been fueling higher inflation. If we can see that wage growth start to tick down, then that bodes well in terms of the Fed's interest rate hikes are working to bring inflation down. So it's twofold. We want to know whether the banking turmoil has affected the jobs market in a significant way. Hopefully not. And we also want to know that wage growth is starting to slow. And if it is, that's a good thing because the Fed's interest rate hikes have helped to bring inflation down. For sure. Uh, lots to watch there and a few details to parse through. And you had a couple of interesting um, articles out this week. One of them is on the U why U.S. investors are shunning U.S. stock ETFs this year. Um, what have you found? Yeah, this was a super interesting uh, story because, you know, we look at flows every day, every week, every month here at ETF.com. And we generally see a steady flow of money go into ETFs of all types, right? And particularly US equity ETFs. This is usually the category that takes the lion's share of new money that comes into ETFs. But if you look at the flows data for Q1, we saw that investors actually pulled a couple billion dollars out of US stocks during the quarter. Mm -hmm. And in this article, I kind of wondered, why is that? And ultimately, my theory is that investors are extremely pessimistic about US stocks at the same time that risk-free interest rates are at 15-year highs. So in other words, even when investors are pessimistic about stocks, you know, over the last three, four, five years, we've seen bouts of pessimism, but they've still reluctantly put money into the market. But this year, they have a viable alternative that they can feel good about. Treasury bond ETFs, as well as money market funds, which are offering yields of around 5%. And if you look at the flows into money market funds, they're just absolutely massive, half a trillion dollars since the start of the year. And that essentially tells you how much demand there is for guaranteed yield. Uh, and stock ETFs have kind of been on the losing end of that. Even though they perform well, investors just don't want to take the risk in this environment when they can get 5% sitting in a money market fund or an ultra short bond ETF. Got it. Yeah. Uh, and you also have a piece out on AI taking over the world and make an interesting argument that you would, we've seen almost every sector 
disrupted with the AI revolution at an unprecedented scale. Um, and the argument that you're making that it makes sense for investors to gain exposure to AI through uh, ETFs. Why is uh, why exchange traded funds such a good structure for um, for gaining uh, exposure to this fast moving um, sector? Yeah, so Daria, you and I, and I'm sure everyone listening knows just how rapid the advance, advancements in AI have been over just the past several months, right? It seems like nobody outside of tech was talking about AI. Now suddenly everyone's talking about it and not only talking about it, but using it. Chat, GPT, mid-journey, stable diffusion, you name it. These are extremely impressive products and they kind of give us a glimpse at the potential that AI has over the next several years. So given that, how would an investor go about capitalizing on the growth in this theme? Well, one way to do it would be to buy individual stocks, but that's always a tricky thing. You have to worry about buying not only the right stocks, but at the right price. 2022's tech meltdown taught us that valuation very much matters. And, and while you could still get burnt by buying an ETF when valuations are high across an entire industry, we've seen you know many ETFs implode in 2022. Uh, but the diversification that you get with ETFs gives you a degree of safety that you usually don't get when you buy one stock or just a handful of stocks. So that's why I think ETFs could be a good way to play the AI theme. And I mentioned in the story a couple options. You know, you have things like the iShares US Technology ETF, ticker symbol IYW. This fund's unique because it holds all the big mega cap tech companies that are investing heavily in AI, Microsoft, Alphabet, Meta, NVIDIA, et cetera. And you don't see that as often in tech ETFs anymore because since the changes that were made to the global industry classification standard, some of the mega caps moved into the communication services sector while others remained in tech. With this ETF, they're all there together. And uh, another uh, way to go about investing in AI that I mentioned in the story is through more niche type of AI ETFs. These funds, they usually combine uh, AI with robotics to create more of a, a broader autonomous tech type of ETF. So you have funds like BOTS, B-O-T-Z, Robo, ARCQ, I-R-B-O, and R-O-B-T. And the thing about these ETFs is you have to look closely under the hood to see what strategies and what stocks they own because they vary quite a bit. Definitely a lots of options for investors and super interesting structures for gaining exposure to AI. We'll link to these stories in the show notes and you can find, before we turn over to our guests today, um, you can find these and other stories on ETF.com as well. And today we'd like to welcome um, Ryan Jackson, research analyst at Morningstar. Welcome, Ryan. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. It's been a little while since the last time I was on. I was worried I was going to be a one and done. So I'm thrilled to be back. Yes, I should say welcome back to our show. It's great to have you back. Um, so in terms of your first quarter report um, that that was published earlier this week, is there anything that stood out to you or surprised you in particular? Yeah, I, so it was a really interesting first quarter in the world of ETF flows. You know, overall, U.S. exchange traded funds collected about $77 billion in the first quarter, um, you know, continuing to pull in money, but uh, pretty unique under the surface, what we were seeing 
uh, in the sense that bond ETFs uh, really took over the mantle and look like they're in, uh, whereas U.S. stock ETFs, um, which tend to be the bread and butter of ETF investors, kind of look like they're falling out of favor. Um, so, you know, starting in the, the bond world, we saw ultra short bond funds starting out very sexy with the most conservative cash like portfolios you can find. Uh, pulled in about $16 billion in the first quarter. Uh, that led all Morningstar categories. Um, and like I said, these are you know, your very safe, uh, very short-term bond portfolios. Their average duration tends to be only a few months. But you can kind of see the case for why investors would move there, just given that the yield on the three-month treasury bill uh, was at its highest level since before the global financial crisis. Um, so you can get that, that attractive yield, get compensated handsomely for really not taking on much risk. Um, so, you know, similarly, in the, the conservative bond world, we saw the long-term government bond category pick up about $15 billion in the first quarter. Uh, that's really an extension of a trend that we saw starting to brew last year. Um, you know, these funds over the past 12 months have grown at an 84% organic growth rate. So that means from uh, investor flows alone. Uh, I think what we're seeing are some investors continuing to want to lock in some of these longer-term yields while they can. Um, some were a little bit early on that trade. You know, we saw a lot of investors start to file in last year before yields really hit their peak. Uh, but for those that were able to hop in earlier this year, I, I think it was a pretty timely trade for them. So we're seeing that really conservative stance and you kind of get it on the other end too, where we saw high yield bond funds actually suffer about eight and a half billion dollars of outflows. You know, mm -hmm. these are riskier, um, a lot of times highly corporate bonds. So I think that's a testament to this really conservative mindset uh, that a lot of ETF investors and a lot of bond ETF investors in particular started to take. Yeah, that's interesting. And the divergence that you mentioned between the stock and bond ETFs in the first quarter, do you see that continuing into uh, going into the second quarter now? You know, it's it's tough to say because for so long, you know, U.S. stock ETFs have been the old reliable for ETF investors. You know, that's where you've got your big S&P 500 funds, your total market funds. Uh, but in the first quarter, you know, even though uh, overall, stock ETFs picked up about $22 billion of inflows. Uh, that's because there were $30 billion of inflows into international stock funds. So that that headline number can be a little misleading because when it comes to U.S. equity strategies, uh, we saw them lose about $5 billion in the first quarter, mm -hmm. uh, their first quarter of outflows since 2016. Uh, you know, when I think about the culprits here, I, I think you need to start with large value funds. Um, you know, this category pulled in about $80 billion in 2022, um, then followed that up in the first quarter of this year with $7 billion of outflows, uh, which is their worst quarter to date. Uh, you know, I think maybe some investors got a little uh, overexcited about these dividend strategies, these deep value strategies that handled the bear market last year better than most. Um, they're starting to kind of pull back on that enthusiasm a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, and then even in the world of, of large blend funds, you know, I, I call those old, old reliable where they're holding your, your S&P 500s, your just portfolio staples. Um, but we even saw these strategies lose about a billion dollars. Um, you know, I suspect maybe investors are, are looking around and, you know, after such a long period of the there is no alternative to stocks, you know, they're, they're turning to places like ultra short bonds, mm -hmm. uh, government bonds, because that attractive yield is available elsewhere for the first time in, in quite a while. Yeah. Um, well, and on the, I'm sorry, Daria, but on the you know stock ETF flows, I know Sumit wrote about that a little bit this week. Mm -hmm. um, I'd be curious if there's, you know, anything else that, um, that I may have missed or, or you wanted to chime in on. Yeah. 
Uh, that's interesting, right? I think you hit on it, right? You're talking about there is no alternative for so many years, and now there is an alternative, right? And particularly, you know, we've seen, as I wrote in this article earlier this week, $450 billion go into money market funds. That's just incredible. That's a 10% increase in money market fund assets since the start of the year. They have something like $5 trillion now. And if you look at these funds, they're offering almost 5% yield close to risk-free. And that just seems super attractive in an environment where stock market is down from the highs, but it's not down all that much, right? The S&P 500, something like 16% off the highs. So there's, there's not necessarily deep value in the stock market. At the same time, we have inflation still really high. We have the banking crisis going on with regard to regional banks. So I think investors are just super pessimistic about stocks right now if you look at the investor sentiment surveys and at the same time they finally have an alternative they can turn to uh, that's offering you know solid yields finally after you know 10 15 years so i think it's a combination of those things yeah that's an interesting point samit and i think that we're seeing a lot of um interesting and unique dynamics happening this year you mentioned international ETFs, um ryan and kind of the question i had for you was why we've seen them perform so well in terms of you know inflows they have absorbed 30 billion in the first quarter right and then especially kind of in the context of what's going on with the us equity etfs um we've seen some of that trend emerge late last year but it seems to be one of the big themes going into this year um why do you think that the international etfs in particular perform so well yeah it, it's a great question daria and honestly one that i've been trying to sort out myself um, you know, it has been a pretty concentrated rise for uh, international stock ETFs in, in terms of the categories. Um, you've got Europe stocks actually pulling in a ton of money so far this year. Um, that's kind of been concentrated in one portfolio in uh, JP Morgan. Beta Builders Europe ETF, that's uh, BBEU is the ticker, has pulled in uh, about $6 billion in the first quarter. I've also seen the foreign large blend and Diversified emerging markets categories uh, pull in quite a bit of money as well. You know, these kind of house a lot of broad index funds that will give you exposure to, um, you know, a wide ranging markets from, from Europe to your kind of MSCI ACWI, these uh, global portfolios. Um, but outside of that, those three categories, you know, there hasn't been a ton of activity, um, you know, not a ton of uh, country specific flows or, or picking out certain niches in the market. Um, so as far as what is actually driving it, you know, I think as Sami touched on, pessimism in the U.S. could be a mm -hmm. factor where you know folks don't want to get some of their international exposure or their stock exposure, but um, prefer to get it, uh, you know, outside of a, an economy that's kind of been riddled with inflation and um, now a banking crisis. Those aren't uniquely U.S. issues, but I think they're ones that uh, feel like they're hitting a little bit closer to home here stateside. Um, so that could be pushing it, but. I'd be surprised to get back to your original question if flows into U.S. equity funds were down for long, just because they're so ingrained in the, the ETF world and so many investors' portfolios. Um, it would be surprising to me if if people abandoned them altogether. Mm -hmm. I mean, certainly there is a lot of uh, sources of uncertainty when it comes to recessionary fears and um, job report that uh, this week and um, others areas of uncertainty that seem to be uh, compounding. Um, in terms of the sustainable ETFs, that's our record. We've covered this extensively for ETF.com in terms of mm -hmm. $6 billion exit in the first quarter. 
Um, do you see this as sort of a reckoning moment for ESG? And then if we, without getting into much of a methodology, if you could walk us through as well, how you think about sustainable ETFs on Morningstar in terms of your methodology. Sure. Uh, do I think they're a reckoning? I think is a really interesting way to put it. And I would hit the pause button on that. Um, on the one hand, look, if you kind of look back at you know quarterly flows into sustainable ETFs going back to late 2020, it's been a pretty steady downward march. Um, you know, I think that's kind of when enthusiasm for these funds peaked is, uh, you know, they tend to lean growth a little bit. And you know, at the end of 2020 and early 2021, growth stocks were doing extremely well. So uh, I like to think there was some sort of performance chasing involved. Um, and then, you know, you see $6 billion of outflows. This quarter is their worst to date by a wide margin. The reason I don't think it's a, a reckoning necessarily is because I think that $6 billion outflow is uh, a little bit misleading uh, in the sense that pretty much all of it came out of one ETF. Mm -hmm. uh, ESGU is the ticker. Mm -hmm. um, and it wasn't necessarily a, uh, you know, the angry mob had their pitchforks and torches out and decided that they were done with ESGU and ESG in general. It's that the, this strategy was slotted into uh, BlackRock's uh, target date series, very widely followed model portfolios by uh, a ton of financial ad advisors. Uh, and they swapped in iShares MSCI USA quality ETF, QUAL, uh, in the place of ESGU. So we, we saw in one day alone about $4.5 billion change hands from ESGU to QUAL. Uh, and I think that that kind of left a black eye for sustainable ETFs as a whole when you look at the quarterly flow numbers. Um, so even though the trend has been working down that way, you know, I think ESG has come under a lot of pressure. You see it with some institutional money, uh, you know, with a lot of public funds, especially in the, the southern states, you know, coming out against ESG and against BlackRock specifically. Uh, you know, I, I'm still not ready to say that, you know, this is it for, for ESG and, and the flows that they attract, because I still think that, you know, the case is strong, even though their performance has been down a little bit. And I still think they they speak to a lot of investors, right? So they, I don't think a lot of these folks that uh, were pretty convicted in sustainable investing are, are going to do a 180, a big heel turn after the performance started to slip and, and certain politicians have spoken out against them. Um, of course, we'll see, but yeah, I don't think this is going to be, um, you know, a, a real turning point that we're seeing right now. I, I think they'll make their way back. Um, and as far as how we define sustainable ETFs, um, you know, we, we've got a methodology paper that lays it all out pretty well. I think intentionality is a big part of it. Um, you know, at the end of the day, what is your investment goal? Um, it, it's not really going to fly if someone kind of backs into it because they invest in a couple clean energy companies because they think they're trading at attractive multiples or something like that. Um, you know, it's got to be a, a central part of the overall investment thesis um, of the index's purpose of the active manager's purpose. Um, but it's a pretty nuanced thing that, you know, the folks on our ESG team have done a great job sorting out and have been working on for quite a while. Mm -hmm. That's fair. Um, and I think even beyond this, particular figure being so concentrated in one name, I think we are seeing issuers rethink their methodology or even kind of their alliance with uh, the ESG names and categories, which has been an interesting kind of trend to observe as well. Um, and you mentioned also the banking crisis, the financial crisis that we've seen as being part of the uncertainty and stress. And so the, you know, Spider S&P original banking ETF, Kieri is down over 28% um, for the quarter 
from your perspective, when you look at at the financial sector, is the banking crisis over? You know, how should ETF investors be thinking about this financial institutions and, and the, the landscape going forward? Yeah, so you mentioned KRE with the you know, the massive drop, obviously, in this past month. And, uh, you know, kind of interesting, it, of course, becomes the newest by the dip candidate on the market, right? Picked up record inflows and pretty much doubled in size in last month alone. Um, I, I don't know why we would expect anything less from the, the ETF investing crowd these days. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, as far as how to think about it, you know, I, I think it's going to be interesting to see how this affects you know, how the Fed and, and our monetary policy unfolds moving forward. They've kind of hinted, you know, especially in the comments following their meeting last month that, you know, this sort of uh, banking crisis might have done a little bit of their their work for them, might give them the freedom to maybe relax on hiking interest rates. Um, and it'll be fascinating to see, you know, if we really do get a credit crunch where, you know, a lot of these financial institutions are going to tighten up their lending standards, um, you know, try to be a little bit more prudent with their investments not only to regain the trust of a lot of depositors, but also because um, a lot of depositors have fled these smaller regional banks and um, you, know, you don't have a, a surplus of deposits sitting in your coffers. It's a little bit harder to dish out loans to um, you know even some of the more credit worthy uh, potential borrowers. Uh, so we'll see how much it tightens up. And uh, what I'm really curious about is, you know, to what degree it kind of reverberates through the, the stock market and more particular, more specifically in the the small cap market, right? You know, we saw this past month alone, uh, small cap stocks overall uh, really took it on the chin. That's because you know they're um, including a lot of those regional banks, um, whereas large cap stocks people kind of fled to for some of these big gargantuan companies with treasure troves of cash that can absorb those issues a little bit better. Maybe aren't as reliant on banks to loan them money, so. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I, I think it's fair to be a little bit trepidatious of small cap stocks moving forward, just because they're maybe a little bit more sensitive to a potential credit crunch, um, and maybe you know start to look at something like, uh, you know, a QUAL, a, a portfolio of stocks that have really healthy balance sheets, um, and might be a little bit better insulated from those concerns. Uh, but we'll see. We'll yeah. see. There's a lot that that remains to be seen. Um, because I remember uh, last time we spoke last year, the small cap uh, stocks were one of the names that you were paying particular attention to, correct? Yeah, 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 that's right. Um, and I was thinking about that today, too, um, just because for a while, you know, they've they've looked pretty attractive from a, a price multiple standpoint. And um, last year, you know, I was expecting them to get hit a little bit worse than they actually did. So you know, I was thinking potentially ripe for a rebound, but you know, just given the fact that most of the regional banks reside in, in the small and mid cap sectors, mm-hmm. um, that made for a really tough, tough march for them. So they've been pretty far behind the uh, the larger cap, higher quality names in the first quarter here. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting segment to watch. Um, I also wanted to ask you about the tech stocks, which have been fascinating to me in terms of, you know, the different kind of conflicting trends that we're seeing on the one hand, a lot of the companies moving away from the metaverse and then semiconductors seeing kind of being a becoming a haven in terms of performance and uh, safety. Um, do you see kind of, how do you think about, you know, the tech trend kind of going forward or do you see more rebalancing happening um, in the ETFs in terms of how these, uh, you know, issuers and investors should be thinking about the tech sector going forward? Yeah, it'll, it'll be interesting to monitor. And, you know, I think a lot of ETF investors are, starting to pick up that appetite for tech ETFs again. We saw them pulling 
um, over a billion dollars in March uh, after kind of a slow start to the year and slow 2022. Um, I mean, it's been a big 180 from last year, right? When uh, you need to think about tech and, and growth stocks, I think, is being uh, a lot more sensitive to interest rates than most, uh, you know, healthcare, utility, value-oriented stocks, because their forecasted cash flows come further in the future. So when rates go up, present value of those cash flows uh, are a lot lower today. So we saw, you know, growth stocks uh, pretty much across the board, uh, but none harder than tech really get crushed last year. Um, and I think early on in 2023, there's been a couple things working in their favor to sort of spur that turnaround. Um, you know, number one, I, I hit on a little bit is a lot of these tech companies, your your Googles, your Microsofts, your Apples that did really well the first quarter, especially in March, um, tend to have really healthy balance sheets with a lot of cash. So should there be any sort of credit crunch, um, you know, any difficulties in acquiring just lending um, they're going to be pretty well positioned to handle some of that. They, they feel like a little bit of a safe haven in that regard. Um, so I think it's fair to, you know, to treat them uh, with some respect in the first quarter because they can handle it. Uh, and then on the other front, uh, you know, we're starting to see, you know, from the Fed a little bit of that signal that these interest rate hikes might be drawing to a conclusion sometime soon. Um, I believe the, the consensus forecast has only one more 25 basis point hike um, for the rest of the year, and then a pause or, or potentially even a, a cut later in the year and into 2024. Um, I think the market last year was really kind of a, a one-trick pony, where it was whatever the Fed was saying was um, moving the market one way or the other. It's more nuanced this year now that we've got all these other factors, but still, the fact that the Fed you know, is potentially going to reduce uh, those interest rates a little bit sooner than maybe some anticipated as recently as three months ago is is working in tech's favor. Um you know, and you know, you brought up the semiconductor stocks. I, I think that's certainly um, a, a big driver for them there. Uh, you know, you've seen just tremendous rebounds from the likes of uh, Nvidia or advanced micro devices have um, absolutely shot the lights out in, in 2023 here. Um, so maybe there's a part of it too where investors thought, you know, maybe we were a little too quick to write them off in, in 2022, a little too responsive to what the Fed was saying uh, in the warnings they were issuing last year. Um, so I think, you know, that kind of constellation of some, you know, behavioral stuff, some monetary policy, um, and the higher quality of some of their balance sheets uh, have all kind of pushed them up. Um, you know, whether that trend remains in place, it's, it's difficult to say. Um, as my as small cap as the sector to watch call from last episode will tell you, maybe I'm not the one who should be looking into a crystal ball here. <laughs> That's a great breakdown, Ryan. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see whether, you know, tech can regain its leadership role that it had prior to 2022. Was 2022 just a one-off or is what we're seeing this year kind of just a reflexive rebound after being beaten down so hard and then they're just going to fall back down again? I think, mm -hmm. you know, it's really hard to say, given like you said, it has a lot to do with interest rates and that's related to inflation and the macro picture. So who knows, but so far, it seems like they're doing pretty well in 2023. I, I kind of want to shift gears now and talk about active ETFs, because I know you've written about these quite a bit. What's going on with those? And, you know, what's your long-term view of active within the ETF space? Do you think it's going to take meaningful share away from passive? Yeah, I mean, so active ETFs, you know, really just started to burst on the scene after the passing of the, the ETF rule in 2019. Um, and over the past year and a half or so, we've really started to see their, their footprint expand. 
Um, you know, last year, you know, they only represented about 5% of the ETF market, but pulled in 15% of the net flows. Uh, fast forward to quarter one of this year, still only 5% of the market. They've got a big pie to cut into here, but picked up 30% of the first quarter inflows. Um, so we're definitely starting to see that, you know, even as active open and mutual funds see outflows, there are inflows into active ETFs. I think there's appetite for not only, um, you know, for, for ETFs across the board for, you know, some of their structural benefits um, and not only the the index strategies that they traditionally harbor. Um, so, yeah, I, I would not be surprised in the slightest to see active ETFs continue to, to bite into that uh, index fund market share. Uh, been some interesting players and, um, I think the different firms that have really like made out well from active ETF inflows kind of show that there's different ways to do it. Uh, JP Morgan is is the headliner here um, and their largest active ETF, JP Morgan Equity Premium Income, uh, JEPI is a fund I've talked about quite a bit. I awarded it the unofficial 2022 ETF flows award. Um, JP Morgan is yet to publicly accept that, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, but this is a this is basically a covered call strategy, you know, that has some, um, you know, long market exposure, but is selling call options to to generate a little bit of income, provide a little bit of a floor on that portfolio. It pretty well positioned for the 2022 bear market and absolutely crushed it. Um, so J.P. Morgan, um, you know, has kind of made its its bacon through some of those non traditional strategies, and uh, they have some short term bond strategies as well. Uh, you look at shops like uh, Dimensional Fund Advisors or Avantis. Uh, these are kind of situated in between um, active and true passive. They, they unfurl systematic active equity approaches, um, you know, kind of taking the market and, and tilting it towards uh, the small value and high quality factors. Um, and they've all made out really well so far this year as well. Um, then you look at someone like Capital Group, which is, you know, a, a really well entrenched kind of traditional discretionary active stock picking uh, equity manager. Um, and, and they've kind of made the pivot um, into ETF starting in early 22 and have done well there as well. So point being, I, you know, I think there's not one simple formula, uh, you know, for really planting your flag in the active ETF market. I think what we've seen so far has shown there's a lot of ways to do it. And um, I wouldn't be surprised to see that attract a lot of other firms, you know, that are maybe not finding success in the open-end mutual funds that they once did. That makes a ton of sense. And uh, speaking of active, someone who likes to make a lot of active kind of stock picking <laughs> calls is Jim Cramer. And I know you recently wrote about the Jim Cramer ETFs. Are these funds to be taken seriously or are they kind of a joke? I would lean toward the latter. Um, the, the funds in question here are, are LGIM and SGIM, uh, basically a, a long Cramer portfolio and a short Jim Cramer portfolio. Um, at the time that I recorded a video on it, I think the short Jim Cramer portfolio had about seven billion in assets. The long Jim only had about two hundred million. So I think that tells you which side the public tends to land on. <laughs> um, but basically, the premise of these portfolios is, you know, technically they're they're actively managed, but uh, Tuttle Capital Management, the ETF provider that issues them, basically has three managers kind of rotate. Uh, you know, uh, across responsibility. And I think they might've been on, on your podcast, actually, now that I'm thinking about it. Um, but they basically sit and will monitor Jim Cramer's Twitter. Uh, they will watch Mad Money and they'll watch him on the news in the morning, just kind of hawking any sort of news on which stocks he like, which kind of stocks he doesn't like. 
And in the case of the short Jim Cramer portfolio, SGIM, we'll do the exact opposite. Um, so it is objectively funny. Uh, the inverse Cramer Twitter account has been around for a while. I think it's hilarious. It's good humor. Um, you know, I, I think people like the the kind of humility that it instills upon a talking head on TV. Uh, but from like a real investment perspective, I don't think anyone would, would treat it as, uh, you know, a really strong approach to building a portfolio, right? Like Jim Cramer's up there talking about stocks that he finds interesting that are flashing in the news cycle, kind of whatever whims he's feeling on a day-to-day -day basis. He's not out there, you know, speaking with the intention of, of building a really well-constructed portfolio. Um, they're also long short. So uh, keep in mind that, you know, should we enter a, a really strong uh, bull market, you know, these would trail by a wide margin. Uh, and they're also expensive. I think both charge 1.2% uh, um, where you can get, you know, your your basic boring broad stock market index funds for only a few basis points. So from a real investment perspective, no, I, you know, I would not treat it as something that you should slot in a very serious uh, brokerage or retirement portfolio. But, you know, if you want to sprinkle a little bit from a fund money account, just to kind of follow along and, and hop in on the joke, uh, yeah, I'm not going to, I'm not going to fault you for that one bit. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. And if Jim Cramer is the equivalent of throwing darts at a dartboard, then this ETF is kind of the same, <laughs> throwing darts at a dartboard or betting against the darts on the dartboard. <laughs> right, right, right. I mean, it's like, what we'll see what happens. Maybe all along, Jim Cramer really is the biggest fraud of all time. And this inverse <laughs> Cramer portfolio absolutely knocks it out of the park. Uh, that would, that'd be crazy, but um, not something you necessarily want to be banking on. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And then it's like also the interpretation of what he's saying, right? There's no like objective measure of which one he's more bullish on. Right. Um, you know, it's, it's crazy. But yeah, it is funny. Like you said, it's objectively funny. Um, but before we let you go, Ryan, is there anything else you want to add? What are you looking forward to for the rest of the year in terms of ETFs? Yeah, I mean, I, like we touched on it just recently here, but I'm, I'm curious to see how active ETFs continue to expand. Uh, you know, I, I think it's a real change in the market that for so long has just been you know, super down the middle of the fairway with your, your, your vanguards and your um, iShares rolling out these plain Jane, broadly diversified index funds. Uh, I think more often than not, kind of informed by the, the Morningstar active passive barometer, we tend to look at those strategies really favorably. So the fact that they've you know kind of continued to, to dominate the flows landscape is a good thing for investors because they're cheap. More often than not, they're they're well constructed, and there's something you can feel good about putting your money in. But you know that's not to say active strategies have no merit, right? There's a ton of ton of good strategies out there. Um, so I'm curious to see like where else we see you know some of these top notch uh, you know Morningstar medalist rated active strategies start to penetrate the ETF market a little bit. Um, and see if they can kind of grab some of that market share that for so long has been dominated by these these plain Jane funds. Um, and then aside from that, you know, just coming off this first quarter, um, I'll be interested to see if we just have a general U.S. stock ETF rebound. Um, I you know I think Sumi, you laid out really well the the reasons for pessimism and you know the overall concerns of the U.S. market. And I think astutely pointed out a lot of times that's if anything a really good signal that it's time to buy. Um, you know, for so long, yep. we've seen investors just miss time, you know, when they should should be adding and subtracting from their portfolios. So um, yeah, I know I'll be following closely to see if, uh, you know, that bears out once again this year. And Ryan, I also wanted to ask you in terms of your thoughts on the issuer side of things. And if you're if you're seeing kind of going forward, 
any of the big firms will continue to dominate the space? Or do you see are seeing some of the smaller players that are that are picking up assets um, going forward is one of the um, trends and one of the issues I think that you've highlighted as well. Sure. Yeah. I, you know, so the, the ETF market as a whole is really top heavy when it comes to the ETF providers, right? So your your big three are iShares, Vanguard, State Street. Um, you know that I think they have close to about seventy percent of the market share. Mm-hmm. I I need to pull that number up. Um, so correct me if I'm wrong, but they're the ones who have for a long time dominated the space. And you know, Vanguard in particular over the past few years uh, has continued to just pull in money quarter over quarter. Even you know this most recent quarter, they led the way with $25 billion of inflows. Um, you know, I, I compare Vanguard investors to Chicago Cubs fans, where whether Cubs are winning 100 games or losing 100 games, rain or shine, there will be people in the seats um, drinking their beers and, and cheering the team on. That's how Vanguard investors are. When you know, markets are up or down, they're going to be rolling money in, concerns aside. Uh, they're just this big machine. Uh, that said, you know, in the first quarter, State Street and iShares both um, really struggled, uh, you know, finishing in outflows uh, for both of them. Uh, you know, for iShares, they've leaned really heavily on their uh, government bond ETFs. Uh, those have been excellent and really kind of kept them afloat where their stock ETFs have fallen out of favor. Um, I think they felt the pain of uh, investors' overall distaste for U.S. stock ETFs in the first quarter, probably more acutely than anyone. Um, State Street, you know, tends to cater a little bit more to the sort of trading audience. They've got great liquidity in a lot of their funds, especially SPY, um, you know, the, the granddaddy of all ETFs. Um, so it makes sense that they might ebb and flow a little bit quarter to quarter. But um, I think we're starting to see you know, some different players enter the fray here. Um, Schwab ETFs uh, have a pretty strong lineup of, of well-constructed, um, you know, sensible products that hit on different market segments. And we've seen them just slowly but surely start to pick up some market share. Uh, they picked up $11 billion in the first quarter. Um, and then I mentioned earlier, some of those active ETF providers, I, I think, could be really well positioned to uh, to start to bite into some of that share. Uh, Eric Belchunas of Bloomberg calls them the, the four horsemen of mm-hmm. active ETFs and JP Morgan, Avantis, Dimensional and Capital Group. I think that's a pretty solid moniker. And, and those are the four that you know, have really benefited from this rise of active ETFs. Uh, we'll see if there there can be some other contenders that join the party and, and start to chip away at the big dogs up top. For sure. That's great. Um, we covered a lot of ground there, even worked in um, Cubs analogy. So uh, <laughs> I've got you. baseball, baseball fever. That's right. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Ryan. It's always great to have you on. Um, And to our listeners, you can get the replay of this conversation on your favorite podcast app. Just search for Exchange Traded Fridays and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.